0: Hi, this is Gender Gab, a monthly podcast series where we chat or gab about our PhD experiences, fails, and accomplishments when researching on gender and abuse. We are your hosts, Julia and Annie,
1: and this is sponsored by the Gender Research Group at Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland.
0: touching on sensitive topics that some listeners may find distressing. Listener's discretion is advised.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to Gender Gab, a podcast series where we are hoping to chat or gab as we would with colleagues and peers about what it's like to be a PhD researching gender and abuse. And we're hoping that anyone interested in you know, these related topics, gender, abuse, intersectional, feminism, etc., will be interested in our podcast and find it both entertaining and educational.
0: Oh, yeah, let's hope so. So we also, again, would like to provide a wee trigger warning um, at this stage while we're not going into any explicit details today. Today's episode will touch on gender-based and sexual abuse. So if you're struggling with any of these topics or need help, please find some support services in our description. Great, so should we get started? Uh, Yeah, sounds excellent.
1: All right, so to ease us into this podcast, uh, I think maybe we should start with telling the audience who we are, how we met, what we're doing, and just a little bit about us.
0: Uh, Yeah, sounds like a good idea. So we are both two PhD researchers at Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland. We share a supervisor. Shout out to Karen. Hi, Karen. Hi, Karen. And she linked us up back in um, October last year when, yeah, when you started your PhD. Yeah,
1: uh, it seems like a long time ago now, but it's been truly nice to chat to another PhD who is on similar wavelength, if you know what I mean. I just feel like we instantly clicked.
0: Oh, for sure. So I remember just before we had the week group chat with Karen, she was telling me all about like how smart you are and how fun you are and that for sure we would totally get along. So I was actually pretty, it was pretty awesome that we did end up um, having our weekly chats and writing retreats and virtual hangouts.
1: Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, And honestly, just during the pandemic, it's been such a relief to find someone to chat with every week and actually see a face every week Um, and your advice has been so helpful as a new PhD student, so thank you. Well, you're welcome. Um, So just to let our
0: audience know as well, I started my PhD on a part-time basis back in early 2019, so about a year and a half before you did. And I'm doing a lot of teaching on the side as well. And for my research, I'm looking into image-based sexual abuse victimization amongst Scottish adults. Including their experiences with the criminal justice system, and also look a bit into how, um, what survivors' understandings of justice is. So, just in case you're not familiar with image-based abuse or IPSA, um, it refers to the non-consensual creation, the non-consensual distribution, and also the threat to distribute images that can be reasonably considered to be private, intimate, or sexual. So. I am purposefully working with a very open definition um, to include some cultural variation. So, for example, a photo showing hair might not be a big deal to a lot of women, but it might be considered intimate for some. So, for example, um, whoever is wearing a hijab. And at the moment, I got most of my preparation work done. So, finally, starting field work in the next couple of months. Very excited. So, what about you, Annie?
1: Ah, Awesome, I'm so excited to hear about how your fieldwork goes. Um, I started a full-time program in October 2020 and I still feel really brand new to the world of PhD yet somehow time seems to be flying by. (laughs) My (laughs) My research is exploring women's experiences of reproductive coercion within the context of domestic abuse. So reproductive coercion refers to the deliberate interference with an individual's autonomous or independent reproductive decision-making. And it often co-occurs with other forms of abuse. And as such, I'm specifically researching women's experiences with male partner perpetrated reproductive coercion and domestic abuse. So some examples of what that might look like include pressuring or threatening a woman to become pregnant against her wishes. Sabotaging her birth control so that she'll become pregnant, and also the for- forced termination or continuation of a pregnancy. And maybe just to sum it up a bit better women in abusive relationships may not have control over their own reproductive health and related decision making, such as whether or not to use birth control, which has various health and human rights implications, of course. Um, I'm specifically interested in the experiences and support needs of women who have been impacted by co-occurring reproductive coercion and domestic abuse. Oh, that's such
0: a fascinating topic. Um, So just what what i find quite interesting what we can already see is that we have that, that we like the both of us have quite a lot of elements in common
1: in our research right absolutely I, I mean even our lenses on gender and feminism is reflected in the way we both approach our research oh for sure um, yeah so when we think about feminism in research we often talk about acknowledging or pointing out the underlying power dynamics and inequalities that structured not just everyday life but also essentially every institution such as you know the education educational system medical system legal system media and virtually every you know institution um, and as feminist researchers we study these power inequalities in order to change them and when we think about this, especially in relation to interest in gender-based abuse and sexual abuse, we are mindful in the ways gender structures everyday life. So what we also acknowledge is that within our current society and most societies around the globe, there is a patriarchal structure, which means that masculinities are favored more highly than femininities, and that happens on a social, economic and political level where men are favored more highly than women or generally anyone who's not a man.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, What might also be interesting, or rather what we should probably um, point out here, is that we are relativists in um, our feminist position rather than being realists. So what um, we have seen in realist and post-feminist narratives, but also from the quote-unquote gender-critical feminists. in the UK over the past years is that they have argued that there's only one sense of truth on, for example, what it means to be a woman. And as such, for example, we've seen a lot of anti-trans narratives on the rise. And realist lenses are also in general reducing women's experiences essentially to that of um, cis, white, middle class and heterosexual women for the most of it. So this is a position we disagree with. And, yes, absolutely. Um... Oh yeah, that reminds me. Um, can we take like a brief second here on um trans people for a second absolutely go ahead yeah so have you noticed that like surveys and general research so unless it's specifically coming from like queer theory sometimes they seem to lack an understanding of what it what trans means like i mean what i've noticed and i mean it's happening less and less thank god but what i've noticed is that people seem to think that trans is a gender category
1: do you mean like how some scholars have asked respondents whether they're like male, female, or trans, as if trans somehow gives you a specific gender? Because I've seen that actually quite recently in a survey. It's bizarre. Yes, exactly right. But but it's not, right? So it's not a gender category.
0: It's, it's an identifier, so it's the opposite of cis. So we can differentiate between cis and trans, where cis means that your gender assigned at birth matches your experienced or your expressed gender identity, while trans means that your sex assigned at birth and your gender identity differs. So from from that logic or from that standpoint, we can also say that anyone, including non-binary and gender queer people, may be within this trans identifier because they are, were likely assigned a binary sex at birth. Um, and maybe we also like um, take a point here and acknowledge that intersex, for example, falls out with the binary. Um, so just to briefly point out that when we talk about trans, we do indeed not mean it as a gender identity in itself, but as an indicator on whether or not your assigned sex at birth matches your gender identity. Um, but uh, yes, what we're saying, so back to where we were, we were talking about being relativist rather than realists in our feminist position. So we're not supporting one universal truth.
1: Exactly right. So we reject this realist universal truth in our feminist position, because for us, there is no universal way in which, you know, gender is experienced or other identities are experienced. And to add to this, maybe gender is not just the harsh binary of men versus women, because there are multiple femininities and masculinities that exist and in line with this we also acknowledge that trans women are indeed women and trans men are indeed men and non-binary genderqueer and genderfluid friends are valid in their gender experiences so regardless of how you identify how you express yourself your experience with gender is valid
0: oh absolutely absolutely um, maybe to expand a little more on this so in, on experiencing um what, what it means to experience something differently it's probably also good moment to say that we are intersectional in our feminism so this is we acknowledge that gender is not the only structural factor that well structural oppression um because they're like the, the matrix of oppression exists right and your experiences are not just based on your gender but also based on your race your ethnicity your um, class your sexuality um, disabilities age and so on and when we think back to how um, feminism developed over the past centuries we can also see how the voices of non-cis head white abled middle-class women were often overlooked, um, which in turn, for example, excluded a lot of women of color, for example, from the feminist narrative, because white women failed to acknowledge that gender does indeed intersect with other factors. And these factors, they're not distinct, right? They work together in everyday life. And as such, they also work as an interlocking system of oppression, which again leads us back to that there is no one universal truth that is
1: experienced. Yes, full circle back around. Thanks, Julia.
0: <laughs> yeah. and um, yeah, so maybe to, to also tie it back to our research as well, gender and other power structures are present in our research too, right? So both in image-based abuse and coercive control. So there is a historic and cultural context in which abuse occurs, namely the way patriarchal power structures, as you said, enable this systemic um, oppression of and the abuse against women and women's bodies, or rather abuse against any gender that isn't male.
1: Yes, Absolutely.
0: Yeah, um, so for for image-based abuse, for example, this means we see that women more frequently report negative experiences than men. And this is unsurprising since women are systemically shamed in real life and online for essentially anything they're doing or well not doing. And even the meanings we attach to female and male bodies differ, right? So, for example, how... Women and girls are told from a really young age to cover up even the most trivial body part because, you know, it might distract the boys um, and even exposed bodies are then also shamed in different ways. So think, for example, about um, nipples, where female nipples are frowned upon being exposed while it's perfectly acceptable for um, well male bodies to show them. Um, but it is um, such a cultural phenomenon. Um, that we assign shame on women's bodies, because not every culture, for example, shames women for showing breasts, but Western societies in this example does. So image-based abuse does has a gendered nature to it, and we can't analyze it or look into it without acknowledging the historical and cultural context in which these images were taken, um,
1: or in which these images were shared, and thus the context in which the abuse occurred. Exactly. And for these reasons in Scotland, domestic abuse is recognized as both a cause and consequence of gender inequality. Um, Abuse must be recognized in relation to men's dominant position within society and women's subordinate position within society. And similarly, within instances of course of control specifically, control is often extended in ways which reflect these gender inequalities. So for example, abusers might enact control over stereotypical feminine roles such as what a woman wears um, and even household duties such as cleaning and cooking, 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 sorry, (laughs) Um, and mothering and child rearing. And this type of structural inequality provides men the resources and opportunity to enact control, but rarely women. Oh, that's such an interesting point. Yeah, and I also think it's important to acknowledge that experiences of abuse, like experiences of gender, aren't universal either. So the way someone may or may not respond to any form of abuse or incident is valid. Two survivors with the same experience may respond differently, and two survivors with a completely different experience may respond in the same way. But there is no hierarchy of abuse. To go in line with what Liz Kelly has talked about with the continuum of sexual abuse, it's inappropriate to rank abuse because it discredits the harms experienced or not experienced. And though we do see, for example, the legal system and also media engaging in ranking types of abuse, from our perspective, we say that you can't you can't rank experiences.
0: Oh, absolutely. Also, oh, that reminds me. So I saw a TikTok the other day um, on. Discrediting, discrediting experiences, right? So, about how survivors may say or have someone say to them something like, um, "Oh, at least it's not as bad as this." Uh, like what happened to this person, or it could have been worse, which is an incredibly invalidating response, by the way. But what this TikToker brought forward was two approaches more in line of, and I love the example: um, if you drowned in the ocean, or if you drowned in a puddle, the outcome either way is that you're still dead. And I think that might be an interesting way to acknowledge different experiences of abuse that might have the same outcome. Um, And although we might also want to highlight here that you don't have to experience any form of trauma or harm for that matter, or any negative response to your abuse in order to
1: have your experiences validated. Wow, I love that analogy. Thank you for sharing that. I think, or maybe I hope, that society is improving slightly and recognizing various experiences of gender-based abuse and how that impacts individuals differently. Um, for example, I don't know if you watched the show Sex Education on Netflix, but I loved the way they treated Amy's storyline in the second season. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Have you seen it? Uh, yes, but go on. Okay, sorry. Um, so for anyone who may not have seen it, Amy was a character on the show who was assaulted by a man on a bus going to school and she kept trying to minimize her experience to her friends and even the police when her friend encouraged her to report the assault. And even though she originally viewed the experience as not a big deal, she had a really hard time getting on the bus and ended up walking miles to school every day to avoid the bus until later in the season when her friends get on the bus with her in solidarity and to support her. I think a lot of people could relate to the storyline in one way or the one way or another. Um, I saw a bunch of articles that came out after the season that talked about how powerful this storyline was and whether or not it was people's direct experience, the feeling of, oh, it could have been worse or, oh, what happened to me wasn't a big deal because it wasn't X or it wasn't Y, was kind of brought to light because our experiences are valid and our responses are valid. Oh, I love that. That
0: that Actually, that might be a really good point to
1: to end today's show
0: what do you what do you think
1: sure sounds good to me (laughs) i could talk about that for hours but probably shouldn't (laughs)
0: it's okay um yeah so to to maybe sum up for today we talked a little bit about our positions as intersexual feminist researchers and how this influences the way we approach our topics and the way gender-based abuse and sexual abuse might be um, conceptualized
1: Yes, and this will certainly be important for any upcoming podcast of ours, and maybe just to give our listeners a little insight into what they can expect in the upcoming months. Uh, We do want to apply this intersectional lens throughout all episodes, of course, but we will have a dedicated episode on doing intersectional research, so you can look forward to that. Uh, Yes, very exciting. Um, On the
0: same line, um, what our audience can also look forward to is a chat on vicarious trauma and empowerment and the ways we as PhDs may be affected in both a negative or positive way by our research and how engaging with other PhDs about experiences can actually be quite a nice thing to do to kind of like highlight that you are not alone. Yes,
1: I am looking forward to that one. (laughs) And a final topic our listeners can look forward to is on imposter syndrome, because this would not be a PhD podcast without an entire dedicated episode where we question our abilities and our knowledge. (laughs) It's way too real. Um, Yeah,
0: so, um, okay, so maybe to end the podcast, on a lighthearted note, how about we highlight um what accomplishment we achieved the past month? So it can be a big one, can be a small one, can be about our PhD or related to research, um, even teaching, or even you know, something else in going on in our personal lives. Sounds good to me. Um, awesome. Um, can you think of anything?
1: Well, I submitted my first draft of my literature review to my su- supervisors last week and it felt nice to actually have something to show them of what I've been working on for the past seven months. So I'm I'm happy to say I submitted my first draft. Oh, that's so good. So 15K done.
0: <laughs> Yay. Oh, so good. Um, as for me, I finally got my first paper published last month, which Ooh. was um, a yeah, highly edited version of my master thesis on how sexing education perpetuate rape myths and victim blaming. Um, go and read it. Um, so now I'm a peer reviewed published. Researcher, yay me. Yay,
1: congratulations, Julia. <laughs> Thank you. And if you're still listening, tweet us your accomplishment at GenderGab on Twitter. That would be awesome. Oh, great
0: idea. Um yeah, but I think that's it for today. We're at the end of the episode. So um if you're interested in joining us for a chat as a guest speaker, please get in touch. So again you can DM us or tweet us on #GenderGab.
1: Or you can also write us an email at gendergapoutlook.com. So tune in next month to listen to us gab on about vicarious trauma and empowerment. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.